from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Jamie Manfra on June 12, 2017. Jamie is founder of the Service Learning School, a micro-school in Florida. She explains what a micro-school is as well as the inspiration behind the Service Learning School in the interview. I first asked Jamie about where she grew up. And what was her religious background? My parents were divorced when I was two years old. So I grew up kind of in two different households. Most of my young life I spent living in Florida and then traveled to Grand Rapids, Michigan throughout the summer to see my father and my stepmother. And I would travel up there uh, alone by airplane with my sister, who's a year and a day older than I am. And both of my parents were Baha'i at the time they were married. My father stayed very active in the Baha'i faith, in the Baha'i community, along with my stepmother. So religious life for me when I was young was quite interesting because when I would travel to Michigan and spend the summers with him, I would be very active in the Baha'i communities. So I used to do dance workshops where we would do dances that um, kind of told stories about racism. I would attend gatherings in the Baha'i community, play with other Baha'i children and Baha'i youth, and do prayers and readings with Baha'i adults. So it was very immersed in the Baha'i community. It was a lot of fun. With my mother, I actually had a lot of friends at my school who were were Christian, and they were actually very active in their church youth groups. So it was kind of a, a neat dichotomy that when I was with her, I was attending uh, Sunday schools, and I, even though she wasn't active in any church, I would go with my friends because I was very social. So during the school year, I spent quite a bit of time um, at Bible studies, you know, kind of gathering on couches and in youth groups and hanging out with Christian youth, you know, that sort of thing. So I got a pretty good feel for both the Bible and the Baha'i faith growing up. What did you do after high school? Well, after high school, I actually wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Prior to graduating high school, I had the opportunity, as an amazing opportunity, to travel abroad twice, um, once when I was 14 and once when I was 16, and I actually traveled with the um, Voices of Baha, which is a Baha'i international choir. That choir includes a, usually a few children, but many, many adults. And we would travel throughout Europe and even Israel and as far over as Moscow, actually. So I, I kind of got bit by the travel bug while I was traveling with that Baha'i choir. So after I graduated from high school, I had an opportunity to move to France for a year, where I stayed with a French family and I was an au pair for two little boys. So when you came back, what did you do? So when I came back from France, my father owns a school in Grand Rapids, Michigan, <laughs> which is ironic. <laughs> um, but his school is uh, called the Blue Heron Academy, and it's a school for uh, holistic health care. He's a chiropractor um, by profession. His school in Grand Rapids, Michigan teaches medical massage therapy, acupuncture, and naturopathic medicine. So when I came back from France, I realized actually having grown up spending summers with him, I'd learned quite a bit about Tai Chi and acupuncture and whatnot. So it was kind of a natural fit for me to attend his school, and I uh, received a diploma in naturopathic medicine through his school. And I began teaching actually for him at a very young age. I was in my, um, my early 20s when I began teaching for his school. At some point, you were inspired to start what you called the service learning school. So what, what I realized is that growing up, um, being exposed to natural health care with my dad was a, definitely a perfect fit for me, um, kind of like the family business. But I realized what really attracted me to that was the teaching aspect. So um, I moved back 
to Florida to be closer to my mom at that time met who was at the time my husband, Michael, and had two boys. My two sons, uh, AJ, when he was in, he's 12 now, but he was was in third grade. So this was like back in 2011. He didn't love school, (laughs) which was crazy to me because I love, I've always loved school, but I realized there's a bit of a breakdown, you know, occurring in the public schooling system. I think we're all kind of observing the, the issues, especially the American public schooling system is attempting to, um, you know, to kind of reinvent themselves and pull up the standard of education in America. So I kind of, I fought him on homeschooling for a little while. Until finally I, I gave in because I realized, although not for all children, sometimes the public schooling system works, but for him it wasn't healthy. So in examining that closer, I decided to go ahead and grant his, his wish and homeschool him, but I didn't want to homeschool him alone. So a few of my friends donated children to me, <laughs> like literally, <laughs> for my class project. The reason for that was because years prior to that, I had started some neighborhood service projects. And I had a little um, service group in my neighborhood of kids that were just happened to be at my house every afternoon after school. And we decided to just start doing some really good things together. We had, um, you know, the Kid Craft Festival where we made crafts and we sold them and donated 100% of the proceeds to all children's hospital. I mean, we had so many of these different service projects that we developed for kids from age two. My youngest at that time was two, all the way up through teenagers were involved in these service projects. And we maintained that for years and the group just kept growing. So through that and through the Baha'i community, a few of my friends also had a similar struggle with their school. And that's why they, um, you know, they entrusted their children to me for educating because of the experience with me with the service projects. So what I ended up with for year one was about six kindergartners and AJ, my older son. So he helped me teach. And then long story short, uh, we progressed through about four years of that. And as we kept going as a homeschool, the school just kept growing. The group kept growing. And until last year, I attracted 14 middlers. And decided to finally um, file as a private school. So what we have now in this area is essentially is a Baha'i-inspired private school. That's a micro school for mostly middle schoolers. So it's an interesting evolution. But the foundation of the school, and this is a big thing, as many know, in religion in general, service to humanity is huge. Pretty much no matter what you know, avenue of spirituality or religion or just a basically good human being, we can all agree that serving humanity is important. And what we're finding nowadays, and this is in the Baha'i faith is that children, especially in small groups, can learn academics rather quickly, especially with well-developed characters. So what service projects allow us to do is help children have an outward perspective and to bond through service projects with their friends. And what that does is it makes the service project fun. So the kids want to keep doing it because they're with their friends. But it also builds a pattern of life and a pattern of activity in life where children are literally socializing through serving humanity. And although that also occurs quite often, you know, with piano lessons or sports, the one thing anyone can do despite cognitive, academic, social skills or talents, the one thing everyone can do, like the ultimate level leveling field, really is service to the world of humanity. So that's the common common thread. It's also the foundation of the school service project. I imagine there's a big difference between having an afternoon program in your home or Mm -hmm. a homeschooling with a group of kids Mm -hmm. and having a full-blown school with an infrastructure associated with it. Can you Mm -hmm. describe for us the transition and the road that you had to take from one place to the other? You know, it's funny because it happens so organically, but there definitely was a transition and I can define it for you. The reason I decided to go ahead and file as a private school, because honestly, had the school needed to be bigger than it is, I probably would not have gone that route. I wouldn't have made it so structured. But there's a big movement that's happening kind of globally and they're called micro schools. 
There's a lot of reasons that that's going to be successful. So keep your eye on it. But what that meant for me, as I looked into it further, is considering that a private school has to be large, but rather that it could stay small. And some of the benefits of a homeschooling group is that you have a, you know, a small group of children and parents can be really involved, you know, in how things are taught. You really can tailor um, and individualize lessons for the children. And another thing that's really large in the Baha'i faith, and I think probably got lost in the school system somewhere, but we know as parents, most parents know, it's not just Baha'i parents, but pretty much all parents know that in order to really help nurture your child's character, that you really have to know your child. And that's very difficult to do. It's useful in a school, but it's difficult to do in a school with a large number of kids. So when I realized that I could do a private school structure and keep it small as a micro school, I went ahead and decided to do that. The transition is just knowing state laws. That's most important. You really have to know um, the laws of the state that you're in because every, every state is different. But what that meant for me in Florida is that I could have a micro school in a private school that would be sustainable by by scholarships. This is one of the biggest obstacles that I ran into with the group prior to it coming a private school was funding. And although we were community funded and we did a lot of fundraising, it was very difficult for families. So some families were able to pay some tuition and that was very helpful. There was one family in particular, a Baha'i family, who rented a rec center for us to have classes in, um, which was also extremely helpful. But I also had some children in the school who were from a more poor demographic, a socioeconomic class. They're fantastic kids, <laughs> absolutely fantastic kids. What was really beautiful about it was that they were becoming very close friends with some of the from um, uh, more wealthy families. And you just don't have that. You know, most public schools and private schools really are, are dependent on the demographic and really kind of include, you know, kids from very much the same background. But what we had in our school, this little school, you know, even last year we ca- we maxed out, I think we had 25 kids total, was that we had such a wide diversity as far as socioeconomic background goes. And that was only doable if I could find a way for the children to attend without it costing the families. And that's why I decided ultimately to pull the trigger on becoming a private school. So explain to me what the advantages of the private school was. To the homeschooling group? Yeah. The biggest benefit was the funding. To be sustainable, to be able to purchase, a, you know, to build a, a school building, you know, just a small pot or whatever on the, the acre of land that was donated to us. To be able to pay salaries for teachers. Being sustainable, especially because I do believe that this model of education is a really good model, you know, for the betterment of humanity to make service the foundation of a school is one sure way to make sure that the world will improve with every generation. So I wanted to make this little model, even though it's small, a sustainable system that could be replicated. And in order to do that, I needed it to be financially sustainable. So that was the biggest motivation. And I wanted to do that so that it didn't cost the families. It wasn't a big cost to the families and that it also wasn't a burden to the community. So the only way to do that would be to be a private school in the state of Florida. The second benefit was just, it's unfortunate, but it just is what it is, was just a simple transparency and credentialing, to be honest with you, because it's such a new way of schooling where service is the foundation of a school. And we take for granted that in public school, we know what they're doing and we know what to expect because it's public school and it's standardized. But private schools are different. They don't have to follow any specific curriculum and homeschool groups don't either. (laughs) So, you know, it's in a, position of kind of constantly defending what we were doing. So making it more structured and showing that we were able to prove fiscal soundness and that we were willing to do the health department, 
you know, the health department, the reviews and interviews and all the fire department and all of that kind of demonstrated to the community and to the parents that, you know, that this is serious and that it's pure, you know, and that it's well-intended and that it's going to be around for a while. So I think transparency was a big motivator for me also and willing to put the work and the effort into becoming a official structure. And you said you have 25 students? I do, yep. So this past year, and it's great because I haven't lost any students. I, it just makes me so happy, you know, that the kids are so happy. They want to keep coming back and they're learning. I had 11 middle schoolers last year. We don't mark it. This has all been through word of mouth. I had six elementary and I had five um, pre-K children. So we're finding that we're definitely a good niche for middle school, especially because in this area, Waldorf and Montessori, the Waldorf school only goes through fifth grade. So those parents are looking for an alternative to public school, middle school for their children. So we found that through word of mouth in the Waldorf and the Montessori schooling systems, that's where we're, our middle schoolers are coming from. So that would comprise three classes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you say you're a micro school, you don't have any desire to make it any larger. You'd rather replicate the model. Yeah. Is that we got saying? it. Yeah. Absolutely. And micro schools, are, they have different definitions. I mean, it, my micro school, I'll cap it 20 middle schoolers, probably won't do too many more elementary school. I really do think it's a middle school. It's really fitting that middle school age. And those middle schoolers are wanting to stay through high school. I have two that are progressing into high school and I'm approved for K through 12. So that's fine. But I really do see this kind of staying a middle school slash high school for about 20 to 30 students. But Micro schools are different all across the globe. Some of them are homeschooling groups and they stay homeschooling groups and they call themselves a micro school. I think the biggest micro school is 200 and they don't get bigger than that. I really think to be effective in what we're doing, I need to stay around 20 to 30. And our ultimate goal, like our three-year plan goal, is to be doing at least one international service project a year as a student body. So traveling with those 20 middle school students on an international service project trip is our three-year goal. So tell me about some of the service projects you did when you were doing homeschooling and then some of the service mm -hmm. projects that you're doing in, in the service learning school. So it started before homeschooling, we had started the service projects. I had the youngest child in the neighborhood. And if you have the youngest child, it usually means that you're the outside mom because <laughs> it's the one child that you don't let go out and just wander around. So I found I was out in my yard with all of the neighborhood kids from as many as like two, three, four streets down. And we set up ramps in my yard with sandbags and plywood and all the kids would come every afternoon after school and they would all play in my yard. And I love kids. So I'd be out there just, you know, talking and giving them snacks. And then it occurred to me one day that having this much time with these kids was great. <laughs> you know, we talked and we did all, you know, kinds of amazing things. But instead of just socializing, I thought we could maybe utilize the time to actually do something productive. And so in talking to some of the kids, one of them suggested the idea of making crafts and then selling the crafts for a benefit, like a charity or an organization. So what they came up with was donate the money to All Children's Hospital. So I thought that was a great idea. So I went and got all the craft supplies and we spent literally the next three weeks just making crafts every day after school. And we made a flyer and we distributed the flyer to the community and throughout the neighborhood and the Baha'i community. And then the day of the Kid Craft Festival came and we set up tables in my yard and the whole Baha'i community came out. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. Everybody with kids, the old people, it was wonderful. And we ended up raising like $257 that day 
for All Children's Hospital. And we had neighbors, I would say a good 75% of the neighborhood participated because every day they used to see the kids in my yard anyway. You know, so they loved the idea that all these kids were working together for something positive. And that first project was such a success that it just lit the fire. And we, on a regular basis, almost monthly or every other month, we were coming up with different service project ideas. We distributed grocery bags to all of our neighbors with a little note attached that asked them just to please fill the bag with extra canned goods and put it on their doorstep by Friday. And they don't even need to see us. We would just come collect them from doorsteps on Friday. From that one alone, I mean, I don't know that there was anyone that didn't participate in that. So that Friday, the neighborhood kids and I just walked from house to house collecting the canned goods. It was amazing. So those are two examples. Yeah. The thing you run into is there's very few volunteering opportunities for children under the age of 12. So we really had to get creative in the service projects. We had to kind of invent our own projects, but we came up with a really good repertoire of about 30 to 40 tried and true kid-friendly service projects. Do you have a couple of other examples? Sure. Well, we did a lot of social space development, which meant you know, just kind of nurturing bonds within the neighborhood to kind of elevate neighbors' opinions of children and of um, adolescents. So we did a monster, neighborhood monster project where the kids made little Sculpey animals and monsters. We wrote little notes and we delivered those to the neighbors' doors. So that was like an example of just nurturing social bonds within the community and the neighborhood. But that was also really important because I think the projects like that were one of the motivators for the neighbors to be so supportive of what the kids were doing. But another example is that the kids for about a month collected like McDonald's toys, the little packaged McDonald's toys, Mm -hmm. or just any little toy, little new toy that they could get their hands on. We saved them. And then we invited representatives from the senior organization that worked with the police department. They're really cool. (laughs) So they came out to our neighborhood and we invited the whole neighborhood and set up chairs in my yard those representatives from the police department spoke to the kids about safety and stranger danger and, you know, all of that. And then we gave them the toys afterwards. And those toys are taken and put in the back of squad cars so that when police officers go to domestic violence calls or, you know, something that they have to get involved in that has children, they can give the toys to the children to kind of alleviate some of their fear. That was an important one. Another one was that we caught wind that a local charter school didn't have money for athletic equipment. So we had a big ball raiser. And again, we just, it was all in my yard. Everything was in my yard. (laughs) We set up a big like tent and all kinds of chairs. And a a neighbor came and she grilled, grilled hot dogs for everybody. And we collected like over 37 pieces of athletic equipment for the charter school on that one. And then we did other just more simple things like planting, you know, like there's Mexican purple flowers that take really well in the Florida climate. So we transplanted those from one neighbor to another. She was very elderly. So the children went and they planted planted the flowers for her. So just anything that we, we really made a name for ourselves is the do-gooders in the neighborhood. Anything that we could do, we did. And it was just, it was just wildly successful. I mean, there's no, there's just no rhyme or reason to how, how much encouragement the kids got. It was just magical. Have you just completed your first year as the service learning school? This would be the first official as a private school year. Mm-hmm. What were the first three years mm-hmm. as? That's the homeschooling group. Okay. And you called it the same thing, the service learning school. Same thing. What kind of service projects did you do this year as a full-fledged private micro school? Well, we did similar. We did planting for the elderly. We also did a Halloween event. It was great that we had a building donated to us this past year. 
a two-story house as a schoolhouse that also has an acre of land. So the ultimate goal is to build a building at the back of that land. But what the lands that came along with that building has lent itself to some amazing service projects. One that we did that ended up being the kids' favorite, that is like the consensus. <laughs> we had a big Halloween event where they had the kids did a haunted house and we did like a trunk or treat where we had tables set up with candy and people could just come. It was a community event. All the community was welcome. But instead of charging for the event, and it was a nice, safe, kid-friendly Halloween event, instead of charging for the event, we just asked everyone to bring a donation of pet food. And the pet food was donated to the Humane Society for their senior pet connection, where they assist homebound seniors with donations of pet food, seniors who can't get out to get food for their pets. And that came about because we we really do have a name for ourselves in the community. I mean, the kids are amazing. So the Humane Society actually contacted me and asked if I would organize a service project to benefit the Senior Pet Connection. And that's what we came up with. We decided that if we did a Halloween event, um, we could entertain people and you know give them a fantastic Halloween gathering and just ask them to bring a donation of pet food that would benefit the Humane Society. That was fun. That was one. That was definitely the favorite. Probably... The, another one that's been really, really big, really popular and really successful is peanut butter and jelly for the homeless. It's called PB&J for Tampa Bay. It's so simple. It's it's insane, but it's just something anybody can do from the age of two to the elderly. We set up tables in the courtyard on the grass and we get donations of bread and peanut butter and jelly. We spend about an hour all making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches together and then they get put in baggies and put in boxes and then those are delivered to a local homeless shelter called Pinellas Hope where they have a pavilion and they literally feed hundreds of the homeless population a day so they're very happy to receive the sandwiches we've done three or four of those and it's been that's a really really successful one too have you had an opportunity or do you have prospects for replicating this model mm-hmm. i have lots of people who are interested in replicating it so I guess I have prospects, but I'm totally open to prospects. <laughs> it's so interesting because this year, the idea was to become a private school and be able to do school in the bottom of this house that was donated. Both circumstances happened and we ended up not being able to do that. So we actually ended up doing school in the park for about a month. <laughs> and then we ended up re-renting rooms at the rec center. So anyone that wanted to start something like this, I could literally tell them how to do it as a homeschool group, as a private school, in a park, in a house, <laughs> in a guest house, in a rec center. <laughs> Give lots of advice. But I do expect there to be prospects. There's been a lot of interest shown. And it's actually, it's just so simple to do that I strongly encourage it. How would you say the Baha'i faith has inspired the working of the school? Huge. I would say everything about the school is inspired by the Baha'i faith. In the Baha'i faith, the idea of service to the world of humanity kind of is our religion in many ways. And I say that because the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, his son, Abdu'l-Baha, was once asked, you know, tell me something about your religion. And one of his responses was, my religion is service to the world of humanity. In much the same way that love is the greatest word, Baha'is consider service as love in action. So while love is the greatest of all in Christianity, in the Baha'i faith, it's taken a step further where love is in action as service to the world of humanity. So the idea in the Baha'i faith is that a school should have a foundation of service to the world of humanity. Now, the other thing that's interesting about the Baha'i faith in this regard, because just like every religion that preceded it came with sort of prophecies or foretellings of the next era, so to speak, 
in the Baha'i faith, one of the things that's incumbent upon Baha'is is individual investigation of reality. What that translates to essentially is that now that we're all literate and we have access to research and resources, that each and every one of us should be investigating for ourselves the truth and the search for God. That's really important to a micro school. And this is why I say you'll see these start popping up is because in a micro school, what we're able to do with a small group of kids is couple technology with their education, but not in a way that's huge and overwhelming. They can access academic education through technology in small amounts of time. And because it's a small group, we don't have to spend a ton of time on academics the way they do in public school. So I have very little behavior redirection which means that a lot of the additional time in the school can be through consultative learning, like in a small group. You know, we do a lot of research, consulting, kind of questioning, and then researching, checking to make sure the sources are strong sources, and then consulting more on it. So it's encouraging each individual child's investigation, individual investigation of reality and consultative skills. Now, that's from a Baha'i perspective, but how does that fit into our future, right? Because we're, we're looking forward. Whereas traditional public school was formed mainly to meet societal need for factory work and labor, but the workforce of the future, it's not factory working, it's small consultative groups. <laughs> so again, the micro school is fitting that need for the future where the workforce, really doctor's offices, think tank tech companies, the workforce of the future and the careers of the future really do look like small consultative groups. We're not assembly line workers anymore. So again, a micro school strengthens the consultative skills that will be needed in the future. And now that we all have access, that for the most part, people are literate and we all have access to information via smartphones and children have that too. The other thing that the Baha'i faith inspired in this in school and also helps the school meet the need of the future, again, it's like we're being inspired by the Baha'i faith. It's also assisting us with meeting the needs of the future is this, because we don't have to spend as much time on lecturing academics because we can do it through technology investigation. We have a lot more social time in the classroom. And what that means with a small group is that whereas classroom time used to be spent on lecture, now it's spent on social skills. So it's a lot of face-to-face interaction between myself and my middle schoolers and the middle schoolers and the middle schoolers with my facilitating through conflict when necessary. And that's meeting the need of a society where character development is going to be really important. Why is character development important? Because along with all of the information that children and adolescents can access now via smartphones, a lot of it's not good. You know, there's a lot of deviancy, a lot of perverse information that they're just inundated with. And especially these adolescents need assistance filtering the societal onslaught of information. So with the micro school, we're able to assist them in filtering that and assist them in elevating their social interaction and really reaching for that spiritual part of who they are and recognizing themselves as spiritual beings. The Baha'i faith looks at the duality of a human being as material and spiritual. So with the Baha'i faith, there's a really strong emphasis on character development with children from a very young age. So with a small group of kids, you don't have to spend as much time on academics because there's much less behavior redirection in the classroom. The academics are pretty easily accomplished. And then the rest of the time is spent in social interacting between the students and between the facilitators of the adults and the students. There's a lot of trust that's built, a lot of bonds. Of course, there's going to be drama and conflict. That's natural. And actually, we need that in order to teach virtue and conflict resolution. 
And with a small group of kids, you can get involved in consulting about conflict if necessary and help them resolve it using virtues. A micro school really is ideal for, for character development. Next year will be your second mm -hmm. year as a private school. And you think you'll have the same mix of children or do you think or do you mm -hmm. already know you'll have a larger middle school class? Yep, I do. I actually have a waiting list for the middle school class, but I am going to cap it at 20 total because I feel like that's a good number. And, you know, it's interesting. Worldwide, there's a big emphasis on character education. We're going to hear it everywhere. I serve on FloridaCharacter.org as a character committee for education here in Florida. You're going to hear that word a lot. With the micro school, because you can, you know, you develop character, but I think people think, and I thought, that the word character is kind of an umbrella or a blanket term that you can teach character. But actually, the definition in the dictionary, the definition of character means the traits that are unique to an individual. So in the Baha'i faith, it's mentioned quite a bit, this idea of nurturing the character of children so that they don't have to fear punishment to do what's right. But in actuality, we can nurture their character in a gentle way so that their desire to do good is so strong they don't desire to do harm. You know, of course, always reaching towards perfection, but we're all human. But I do believe, and I've seen it, that you can nurture the character of a child where they desire to do good and don't desire to do harm. And because the definition of the word character means the traits that are unique to an individual, you have to have a small group of kids in order to help them develop their character. You know, if you have a, a school of several hundred children and a classroom of 28, I dare say it's probably almost impossible to really intricately get to know the character of each of those children to help them develop and optimize who they are. But with a small group of kids, and this is why I want to keep it at 20 in the middle school group, I can get to know these kids. You know, I get to know their challenges. I get to know their strengths. I get to know the dynamics between them. If I see virtues that are kind of latent that I think they could strengthen and challenges that they struggle with, like, for example, if they struggle with being covetous, you know, I can pair them with a child who is maybe too merciful, maybe learns, needs to learn a little justice for themselves. I can pair those two together because one will be covetous and greedy and the other one needs to learn justice. So I'll wait for the conflict to arise and that's okay. Or, you know, some clashing and then I step in and that's one way to get these different qualities to expose themselves and to teach character. You can only do that if you have a small group of kids. So I don't think that can be accomplished with a large group. Although an academic pursuit is extremely important, but of the two characters more important, the reason for that, and this again is known in the Baha'i faith, but I think it's also just logical, is that you can have a highly educated, highly intelligent individual. And if they lack character, they can do great amounts of harm. I mean, animals can only harm whatever's immediately within reach. If a dog is violent or on the attack, it can only harm the ones that are around it. But you have a human being with a desire to do harm who's highly intelligent, you end up with a Hitler, really you know, or terrorists, even an individual who's not highly intelligent or academically advanced, but if they have a good heart and they have good character, then they're of benefit to people around them. If you have both an, a very academically developed child who has a beautiful heart and great character, then you that's double great. You know, it's light on light, as they would say in the Baha'i faith. But ideally of the two, that character nurturing is the most important. So academics can be accomplished easily with a small group and character development can only be accomplished with a small group. So that's why I'm going to cap it at 20. <laughs> How can people find out about your service learning school? 
I've got to get better at that. Um, <laughs> so into the kids. Sometimes I forget about the business part, but I do have a school administrator, Megan, just brought her on this past year and she's really good with details. So she's very important for me. We do have a website. It's www.servicelearningschool.org or .com will take you to the same site. And that should be overhauled over the summer sometime. But for now, you can at least see some photos and definitely videos of what we do. And then we also have a Facebook page that I keep very updated. And it's Service Learning Micro School on Facebook. Service Learning Micro School. Okay. We're on Instagram and Twitter also. I think the most important thing is to understand that this generation that we're dealing with is completely unlike our generation. I mean... Time is changing so rapidly. And that was one thing that was even, you know, was mentioned in the Baha'i Faith by Baha'u'llah is that time would speed up. Things are developing so quickly. The access these kids have to the world around them is just unprecedented. When we were kids, we would have to, you know, stumble onto something in our neighborhood, in our home or in our school. You know, we, we only learned our exposure was what was around us within our walls and even limited TV. But now these kids, their reach and the influence on these children is, is exponential. It's worldwide. So we have to understand that they're completely unlike our generation. And in order to assist them with the challenges laying ahead of them, we have to reach their hearts. And in order to do that, we have to be very gentle and very loving with them from the time that they're very small. You have to be very gentle and loving and patient with children. But that doesn't mean to be entirely permissive. Even with small children, as a parent or an educator, you have to recognize harmful tendencies. In the Baha'i faith, um, we're encouraged to prune like gardeners. Parents and educators are, are to be like gardeners, tending to a garden of plants when we're dealing with small children. And when we see an undesirable quality emerge, just to gently prune it, which means to gently redirect it, to have dialogue with the child, but never to permit it, if, especially if they're harmful to each other. Don't ever permit it. Keep pruning. You know, it's, it takes diligence, but keep pruning it until you see that quality die away you know, and encourage the good qualities, but it requires diligence and it requires gentleness with small children. If I could just, in, more than anything else, just encourage adults to rethink how we're educating and how we're interacting with children and understand that their consciousness has changed. The consciousness of children has really changed and how we're interacting with them is extremely important. One more thing that I found quite vital when parents ask me for parenting advice or people ask me for education advice is because we're struggling with a generation of kids, especially adolescents, who really do kind of think and realize that they don't really need us. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek because of course they do, but really they kind of don't in some ways. And the reason for that is because whereas before, when we wanted to learn something, we would seek out a teacher, right? If we wanted to learn piano, we would have to find a piano teacher. Now, I mean, I've got a, one of my students, just the other day, we sat downstairs at my piano and um, we YouTubed an entire piano song. And we learned it <laughs> right there with YouTube as our teacher. So I say that they don't need us because they realize that they can learn without us. What they can't do without us, and this is where we have to remind them they do need us, they're not going to learn experience from YouTube. And they're not going to have a, a well-intended bond with an adult through the Internet. So we have to encourage children to honor well-educated parents and educate, like well-meaning educators and parents. The word respect can be kind of chafing at this point with, with kids. I think they've heard a little too much. But if you just remind kids, and especially adolescents, that 
they need to honor a well-intended educator and parent, then they will inherently respect what you have to offer. And likewise, children have an inherent dignity and integrity, and they also deserve love and care. So adults, it's our responsibility to love, care, and educate the children. And likewise, it's their responsibility to honor an ed- a well-meaning educator and parent. And it's really important to understand that because it's too easy to go towards permissive adulting, parenting, and educating where we're letting children get away with too much and they don't understand the implications of their behavior later on. So the idea of nurturing and educating children and likewise expecting them to honor us is the best recipe for success when dealing with children. I want to thank you so much for talking to us about Service Learning School. Thank you, too. I get so excited when people ask. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jamie Monfra, founder of the Service Learning School in Florida. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Yeah,
change the world So do unto others as you'd have done to you Cause change in the world starts with the golden rule We gotta celebrate diversity and show love universally Cause everyone on earth is part of one community Black, white, red, tan, rich, poor, woman, man Atheist, Christian, Muslim, Jew, Baha'i, Buddhist, Sikh, or Hindu What if you were judged for the language that you spoke? Do you think it would evoke the people down Cause of your race or face religious persecution Time to rid the world of prejudice And start a revolution Talking no more hunger And no more pain No more violence And no more slaves No more hatred And no more greed No more homeless or broken families No more pollution No more disease No more corruption No more poverty No more discrimination Kids need an education Gotta give hope to the up and coming Look towards the future and forget about our sins Take a moment to reflect Cause the power is within Sing it, Awu I can, you can We can change the world I can, you can We can change the world Everybody now. I'll take your hand. Come together, y'all. Then the dream will come true. Yes. We can all make a change. Make a change. One people, one world. Yeah, 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 Got a tattoo or a crown or a gown, but 
roll. Must that real hot pop in my coconut. Don't hate, participate, cause we need your love. Where my ladies at? Let's talk for a sec. Can you hear me way in the back? We don't get respect like we should, y'all. From the verbs overseas to the hood, y'all. Seven million walking the earth. Bloom and I wound. Till it's time to give birth. And you know that it hurt, right? Ain't a man in the world gon' pay that price. Yeah, I'm white, but I know the culture. And they're reverse racism. Everybody kidding me. We're lovers of humanity. I'm saying that we don't sin. Shortcomings abounding. Pray and begin again. Results so astounding. Master the basics. Don't smoke, don't drink. Exit the matrix. Specialize what we think. To the advance. We'll bring them back from a brink. Give them a will. Heal, not kill. Distribute my wealth with justice. Stay the best of the God you trust us. Court Mary Sex, the one you be lusting. Ha 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 ha. Gnashing the teeth, cause I've been in no cussing. Serve the great and good and be selfless. We're the last refuge, so Lord, please help I'm a follower of a hollow lies Covering and study everything relevant You know everything happens in We represent the show me state We represent the USA We represent the planet Earth Cosmos. We represent the You mean- 
drama. I think the whole world's addicted to the drama. Only attracted to things that bring the trauma. Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism. But we still got terrorists here living in the USA, the big CIA. The Bloods and the Crips and the KKK. But if you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate. And to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate. Yeah, madness is what you demonstrate. And that's exactly how anger works and operates. Man, you gotta have love just to set it straight. Take control of your mind and meditate. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all, y'all. People killing, people dying. Children hurting, you hear them crying. You practice what you preach And would you turn the other cheek Father, Father, Father Help us send some guidance from above These people got me, got me questioning Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? love? It just ain't the same Always new change, new days are strange. Is the world insane? If love and peace are so strong, why are the pieces of love that don't belong? Nations dropping bombs, chemical gases filling lungs of little ones with ongoing suffering. As the youth are young, so ask yourself, is the loving really gone? So I could ask myself, really, what is going wrong in this world that we living in? People keep on giving in, making wrong decisions, only visions of them dividends. Not respecting each other, denying thy brother. A war is going on, but the reason's undercover. The truth is kept secret. It's swept under the rug If you never know truth Then you never know love Where's the love, y'all? Come on I don't know Where's the truth, y'all? Come on I don't know Where's the love, y'all? On my shoulder, as I'm getting older, your people get older. Most of us only care about money making. Selfishness got us following the wrong direction. Wrong information always shown by the media. Negative images is the main criteria. Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria. Kids wanna act like what they see in the cinema. Yeah. Whatever happened through the values of humanity Whatever happened through the fairness and equality Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity Lack of understanding leading us away from unity That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down It's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under Gotta keep my faith alive till love is found Now ask yourself Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? That's all we got, one word, one word. And something's wrong with it, yeah. something's wrong with it, yeah. something's wrong with the good world, world, yeah. We only got one word, one word. That's all we got, one word, one word. 
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.